0: we've been preaching through the book of James. Uh, We've made our our way through James chapter 1, 2, and 3. And beginning in January, we will pick back up and finish chapters 4 and 5. Uh, But during this month, we're going to uh, take a break and do a Christmas series. And the title of this series is called The Beauty of Christmas. So just as one can hold, uh, hold up a diamond to the light so that it shines forth its beauty, so our hope during this season is to hold up uh, really Christmas so that we might look at it from different angles to see how God's glory shines through every aspect of Christmas. And our hope is that we would see how Christmas is about worshiping God through Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to stand. One of the things we do here is we we stand at the reading of God's word. We do so because God's word comes to us with his inspiration, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for the purpose um, of our correcting, for the purpose of our training us in righteousness for every good work. And we are going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. And Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconi, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconi was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abihad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Acham and Acham the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Maton, and Maton the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations let me pray father father we come to you now in the name of jesus and we we thank you for this text a text which shows your faithfulness and your power to accomplish your plans to fulfill your promises god i pray that you would give us wisdom today as we read this that through the power of your spirit, you would help us to see the beauty, the significance, the weight, and the importance of this genealogy. And Father, you have given us this word so that it would be a blessing, so that it would inform us of who you are and who your son is. And so God, through this text, may we grow in our understanding today, and may our faith grow, and our worship and our adoration increase as we behold your glory in your name Jesus amen you all may be seated I know that when you sit around to do the Christmas story with your children you love reading the genealogy of Jesus and none of you know if I said any of those names right or wrong because I said them confidently and just went on through them um I know that often we sometimes skip genealogies. At times they're lengthy, they're full of names that are difficult to pronounce. But as we look at this genealogy here in Matthew 1, I I want us to really see its importance. The names that we have are not random. I mean, if you look at down at verse 17, Matthew has arranged his genealogy into three sets of 14. Verses 1 through 6 show the formation of God's people beginning with Abraham. In verses 7 through 11, the formation of the kingdom of Israel ending in the deportation of Babylon. And then in verses 12 through 16, we have the preservation of Israel from the exile to the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew's genealogy is not comprehensive, meaning he's not trying to give us every single name from Abraham to Jesus. And we know this because when we look at Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3, it's a little different. Now Luke goes all the way back to Adam. He doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes all the way back. And there's great similarities, but also even over the same time periods, there are dissimilarities. And you see, Matthew is being very picky, and he's choosing names to to make a particular point. He wants us to see something in the very names that he has given us. So I know that genealogies are hard not expecting everyone to go home and memorize this text, but the genealogies that we do have in God's Word are important for, for many, many reasons, and today uh, we're going to look here at this text, and, and what I want us to a- answer the question is, what does this genealogy tell us about God? Why is it here? What, why is Matthew giving it to us that we would understand something more about God. And number one, I just want us to see that God is faithful to his promises. I just want us to start there. In verse one, we read, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now just so you know, this is extremely familiar to Genesis. In Genesis, uh, Genesis is actually arranged with uh, the regular words, the genealogy of, and then it'll give the names. And in Genesis chapter five, we have the book of the genealogy of Adam. And so Matthew is really wanting us to see that something new is happening here. Just as in Genesis, something new began, now something new is happening here. And what Matthew wants us to know is that this genealogy and this entire book, all 28 chapters, is all about Jesus Christ. But why does he mention son of Abraham and son of David? These are two Old Testament figures. Why them? Why not other people. And it's because Abraham and David are two of the most significant figures in the Old Testament. God made specific promises to both these individuals that Matthew wants us to see are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, what I want to do is just kind of give a, a recap of how Genesis, Genesis begins and how do we get to Abraham? What leads to the promise that God gives to Abraham? And in Genesis, we see uh, that God created man and woman to live with him and enjoy his rule and blessing. We see that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But because of sin, which we see occurs in Genesis 3, humanity is removed from the garden in the very presence of God. Humanity, in fact, is so sinful that when we get to chapter 7 of Genesis, God says that he is grieved over humanity and that he is going to flood the entire earth. It's a type of cleansing that is going to take place. But even after the flood, although the earth, in a sense, has been cleansed, we see that the heart of man is still rebellious to God, and thus man continues to sin and rebel and reject God. And so because of sin humanity what what the bible says has has joined the kingdom of satan they're no longer under the rule of god but they've been moved into a different kingdom now they're now under within the kingdom of satan and thus opposed to the rule of god and so that's how the first 11 chapters are bringing us to this understanding and so at the end of the first 11 chapters we're left with wondering will man ever dwell with god again Will we ever come upon the mountain of God, meaning within his presence? Will we ever enjoy God's rule and blessing? Are we destined to live apart from God and eventually suffer his wrath? And so that's that's where we're at within 11 chapters. And then comes chapter 12. In chapter 12, God takes an idol worshiper named Abraham and he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, sinful man is unable to come to God, and what we see in Genesis 12, God therefore comes to man. And he makes a promise. And the promise is that, once again, humanity will experience God's rule and blessing. They will enjoy God. They will be able to come into his presence. And we might say, well, how? How does that take place? Well, ultimately, when we come through Genesis and then uh, throughout the rest of the Old Testament and we make our way into the New Testament, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, this is what he says in chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. And so Paul is telling us, That the promises that were made to Abraham, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him, meaning meaning the peoples of the earth would again experience the blessing of God and be able to come into the presence of God. Paul wants us to know that only happens through Jesus Christ. But this great plan of redemption begins with God making a promise to Abraham. So that's why Matthew is, is... is calling jesus the son of abraham right now he's wanting us to remember back to this promise that through abraham all the uh, families of the earth will be blessed but what does this blessing look like how will it come to us and so that's why we also are given the name son of david You see, David was a great king of Israel. He was actually the second king. The first king was Saul. He was chosen by the people, and he ended up not following God at all, and then thus God brought forth David to be the king. And David is a king and a descendant of Abraham. That's one of the things the genealogies do throughout the Bible. They're tracking all the way from Adam to Abraham, through Judah, through David, all the way to Jesus, because we're The storyline is showing how through Abraham, God is bringing about his son Jesus Christ to bring about redemption. And now in David... We're we're told that David is a man after God's own heart, and he wants to build God a house of worship. So far, God has been, um, there has been a tabernacle, which is kind of like the traveling tent. Uh, It's the traveling holy of holies that Israel set up all throughout the wilderness. And David says, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a house that's worthy of your glory. And God says, no. It's not for you to build me a house. But then God turns to him and says, in fact, I want to do something through you. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13, this is what we read. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house For my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever And so now remember humanity is separated from God because of sin they're no longer able to enjoy the rule and the blessing of God but now through David God promises that he's going to bring forth a new kingdom God is going to bring man back under his righteous rule that he will be able to enjoy God enjoy his rule enjoy his presence And the throne of this king and this kingdom will never pass away. In fact, 19 times in the book of Matthew, Jesus is called the son of David. All throughout this book, Matthew wants us to know, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one who is establishing the eternal kingdom. You see, Jesus has come to establish God's kingdom. This is the gospel. This is why we gather each and every week. And we can talk about many different aspects of the gospel. But one of the primary things is that Jesus has come to establish a new kingdom, a greater kingdom. One that will last forever. One that will not be destroyed. One that will not be thwarted. One that the enemies will not be able to overcome and oppose. And so Matthew wants to see that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. The entire Old Testament has been leading to this point that we would once again be able to enjoy the rule and the blessing of god and so matthew begins his gospel by wanting us to see that all the promises in the old testament that all the hopes in the old testament are ultimately coming to fulfillment in jesus christ and so matthew's point is that god keeps his promises he is faithful to to his promises. Over the thousands of years that God has made his promises, he has remained faithful. And so that, that brings the question back to us. Do we know that God is faithful? Do you know that God is faithful? Do you know that he never breaks his word? Do you know that every promise that God has made, he's always kept? Do you know why? In Numbers 23:19, this is what it says god is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it moses the author of numbers is directing us to saying hey god is god and he is able to do all that he has ever said he would do he is always faithful and Jesus, the birth of Jesus, ultimately culminating in the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is the ultimate proof of God's faithfulness. And so Matthew, in the very beginning, is just wanting us to remember our God is faithful. All that he said he would do is now coming true in Jesus Christ. But a good question to maybe ask is, how is it God is able to keep his promises? How? I mean, we often make promises, but we're unable to keep them because of various circumstances, right? How is God, over centuries of time, with an innumerable amount of circumstances and variables that get thrown in there, able to maintain his promise? And so the second point that I have is, what we see in this genealogy is that God is powerful to keep his promises. You and I, we often have great intentions. Yeah, hopefully we have great intentions, right? Right? Many times we have great intentions, but because of our lack of power, we could say, we're unable to always do the things we want. We, we want to arrive somewhere on time, and that doesn't happen, right? Like most of you all show up like at 10.10 10 here. <laughs> like it's funny, uh, every week we, we'll, we'll joke around, like at 10 o'clock, there's like 15 people in here, but by 10.15, there's 140 people in here, and we're like, where did they all come from? Um. We make promises to go out to dinner with people. We make promises. We make plans. But then because of various situations, because of variables, because of people, because of weather, because of things that happen, often our plans get interrupted, right? And we're not able to do the things that we want. So therefore, we could say sometimes our promises are broken. Some of our desires are left unfilled. But it's not because we don't want them to happen. We might really want them to happen we might earnestly desire to make something happen but because of things simply outside of our control it doesn't happen do you ever have that some of you are thinking that was thanksgiving meal this last week right It just turkey did not turn out the way it was supposed to or sometimes christmas or sometimes just things that we plan but when we come into god's word what we see is that there is nothing outside of god's control From beginning to end in fact the genealogy seems to to truly emphasize the power of God in order to accomplish his purposes so I just want to show three ways that we see God's power in this genealogy number one God uses many nations now Matthew is writing to a primarily a Jewish audience and yet the genealogy he gives is not strictly Jewish in verse 5 we read of Rahab Well, Rahab was a citizen of Jericho, which is a pagan kingdom. In fact, Jericho was the great city that stood and opposed Israel when they entered into the Promised Land. And yet, in the book of Joshua, we see that Rahab protected the spies that Israel had sent. She believed in the God of Israel, and not only was she saved from destruction, but God then brings her not just into Israel as to be a part of the people of God, but He brings her into the very line of Abraham that brings forth Jesus Christ. Think also of Ruth in verse 5. Now, Ruth is a Moabite. Israelites despised the Moabites, a hated people, and yet God brings Ruth, an alien into israel and she becomes the great grandmother of king david which ultimately then leads to the birth of jesus christ and let's not forget that abraham abraham is the first gentile that gets brought uh, brought into the family of god in joshua chapter 24 2 we read that he just like his fathers worshipped idols what we see throughout this genealogy is that god is not limited to one race to one ethnicity in fact in fact what we also see is that god used babylon as a means of bringing judgment upon his people four times in in our genealogy here that matthew gives us in verse 11 12 and twice in verse 17 we're told that israel was deported to babylon clearly matthew wants to remind us that god uses people of different races of different ethnicities of different kingdoms to all accomplish his purposes. He's not limited to just one people. God's power transcends ethnicities, races, languages, cultures, and kingdoms. Next, we see also that God uses different social classes to accomplish his purposes. When we look at this list of names, and we could go through each and every single one of them, but that would be a lot of names, uh, we see that there's not just the, the social elites that are, that are listed, I mean, there are kings like like David and Solomon, Rehoboam, Hezekiah, Ahaz, and Manasseh, these, these kings of Israel. But there's shepherds like Isaac and Jacob, and even David was a shepherd. There's aliens and sojourners like Rahab and Ruth, who we already mentioned. There's prostitutes like Rahab, and if you remember in Genesis 38, Tamar acted as a prostitute also. There's even children who are listed here. We have Manasseh, who became king at 12 years of age. Josiah, who became king at 8 years of age. And all of these are pointing to that this God is able to use people of all different races, of all different social statuses, for the purpose of accomplishing his purposes. But probably what he wants us to see most is that the fact that women are mentioned in this genealogy. In the first century, and even beyond, And even after the first century, women have been seen inferior to men in many, many cultures. And especially in Middle Eastern cultures, women have always been seen as inferior to men. Women were of no importance. In fact, their testimony in a court of law was not even considered admissible. And yet Matthew chooses to name five women. Now, I think if if a... If a typical Jew would have decided on which women he would have chosen to include in this genealogy, he probably would have chosen names like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. These were the wives of the patriarchs in Genesis. These are the wives that we might look up to. But he doesn't choose them. He chooses different women. He chooses Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth and notice in verse 6 how he refers to Bathsheba by saying the wife of Uriah as if just reminding us of how it is that Solomon was born and we'll come back to that and lastly in verse 16 we come across the mother of Jesus Mary I mean he chooses not significant women which we might say Sarah Rebecca Rachel and Leah were but really at first glance what we would say quite insignificant women these are women who have not necessarily stood out because of anything intrinsic within them. But what we learn throughout the Bible is that God does not see people as we see them. Because of our sinfulness, we often classify people in many different ways. Important, non-important, enemy, friend, gay, racist, bigot, coward, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, and the list goes on. And we could just make a whole list of ways that we, as humanity, categorize people. And often, by keeping people in categories, we can begin to dehumanize people and thus minimize their worth. And we're seeing that all in our culture today. Throughout our culture, people are simply being categorized. Being lumped into these groups so that we can generalize them and we can discredit them, we can minimize them, we can ignore them. And that is happening no matter what, uh, what political field you would like to associate with or in any other group. But when we come to Genesis 1, we read that God made both men and women in his image. Look, one of the amazing things is that when we come into God's word, apart from any other book, we see that humanity is valued, both men and women, the rich and the poor, the alien and the citizen. Do you know that you are of incredible value to God because you're made in his image? Do you know that? Do you know that you're incredibly precious to God? Whether you're male, female, black, white. Rich, poor, tall, short, Republican, Democrat, special needs or not, you're made in the image of God. And because of that, you have incredible value. In fact, remember, we were in that last week in James chapter 3. James says, you, or two weeks ago, you curse God, or you, you worship God and then you curse man with your tongue. And do you remember why James says that's so wrong? And man is made in the image of God. Bringing forth the very intrinsic worth of mankind. In fact, when we come into the New Testament, this is what Paul will tell us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not saying that when we come to believe in Jesus Christ that we have no distinctions, that that everything just becomes blended into this melting pot, but rather there's no divisions. We all see each other as made in the image of God, as saved, as a brother and sister in Christ. You see, in this genealogy, Matthew shows us that God uses all different types of people because every life has value. And because of God's power, he can use the one who is considered weak and insignificant to accomplish great tasks. You see, God does not need us to supply the talent or the resources for his plans and his purposes to be carried out. Whatever God calls you to do, he supplies the necessary means to accomplish the task. Do you know that? You do not limit God by, by your DNA, by your sex, by your talents, by your resources, We do not limit God in any of those ways. In fact, this genealogy is meant to redirect our attention from ourselves to God. We're meant to be in awe of God, of how he uses us, and how he uses people in such incredible ways, and nothing proves this point more than the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. But we'll come to that next week, because next week we're going to look at the rest of Matthew chapter 1 where we're going to look at the birth of Jesus and why it's so significant that he came through Mary, a virgin. The last thing I want us to see that highlights God's power here is that God uses sinners. Now, I know that that at one glance is not surprising and that any of us, if we were to say, you know, are these people sinners that are made in this list that leads up to Jesus? Every single one of us would probably say, yes, of course they're sinners. And yet, that's probably th- what we would do is we would just move right past that point but i think matthew wants us to really see that there are some real sinners in this list for starters i mean we could look at manasseh in verse 10 we see manasseh became king when he was 12 years old Um, eventually uh, as he grew older he would lead israel into some of the greatest abominations that they would do uh, culminating in the sacrificing of children in 2 Chronicles chapter, two, uh, chapter 22, verse 9, this is what it says about Manasseh. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Let us not think that Israel is just this beautiful people that never did anything wrong or, or you know, they were mostly just socially acceptable and their sins weren't grave. No, they were committing great abominations before God. And we could keep going, and we could look at many of the different people that he has listed here. But I think Matthew wants us to really see two sins in this list. First, in verse 6, we read, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew wants to remind us of the scandal that David was a part of. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read that David took Bathsheba, and she became pregnant. And he knew that she was married to Uriah before he took her. That didn't seem to matter. His lust consumed him. He took her anyway. And upon finding out that she was pregnant, he had her husband killed, trying to cover it up. But that's not the only sin that he wants us to highlight that he highlights for us in verses 11 12 and again twice in verse 17 we read that israel was defeated by babylon and they were deported now all of matthew's readers know why babylon came and destroyed israel in fact the prophets all testified to it the kings of israel who were supposed to lead god's people into obedience instead led them into idolatry and wickedness you see the king was expected to serve as a model of covenant faithfulness and was to represent the rule of God to his people. A king was to serve as a model of covenant faithfulness. This is what it looks like to live for God. And they were to represent the rule of God, meaning he was to lead Israel, lead God's people into righteousness. But beginning with David, we see that every single king has sinned. We've had no perfect king king after king after king after king after king has disobeyed god has rebelled against god has rejected god in various ways and thus they have not led israel into righteousness and so we learn that god's people have survived not because of the brilliance of their leaders not because of luck but matthew is wanting us to see that israel has been preserved All the way from Abraham, through the times of the king, through the exile to Babylon, and back again because of God. He's the one who has preserved them. Let me ask you, why are you here today? Just think through it. Why are you here? Why are you alive today, this morning? Why are you in this room listening to this message on this day now you might say chance you might say fate you might say because because of your own choice or could it be that there's a god who is far greater than you and me and he is the one who is ultimately guiding all of history according to god's word the reason we are here the reason we are breathing right now is because god in his great power is sustaining you and i he is the ultimate cause of your heart beating at this moment see the sins of man have not thwarted the plans of God as we make our way through this genealogy and we see imperfect person after imperfect person we realize but yet but yet God is faithful nothing seems to have been able to thwart or divert or oppose God's plan. The God of the Bible is not limited by our disobedience, our imperfections, or our weaknesses. What we learn is from cover to cover is that God in His great power uses our obedience and disobedience to accomplish His purposes. Do you know that? Read through the Old Testament and look at the sins of Israel and how they continually reject and rebel, and yet. The purposes of God seem to continually advance through the entire Old Testament, promise being fulfilled after promise being fulfilled, culminating in the birth of Jesus Christ. See, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, do not think that God is unable to use you. Do not think that your sins are too great for God to love you. This genealogy testifies that God can use the gravest of sins for the accomplishing of his purposes. And Christmas testifies to God's faithfulness and his power and his determination to save by sending his son Jesus Christ. And so the question we must answer is, will I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? We've seen that God is faithful. We've seen that he has the power to accomplish his purposes. So the question is, is have I believed in this God. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at different parts of the Christmas story. Today we're looking at the plan. Next week it's the mission. And we're going to look at various aspects of Christmas. Again, like a diamond, trying to turn it with um so that the light would hit it. And that with us we would see the glory of God. Uh, glory, glory of God. Tongue twist here. The glory of God shining forth through all of uh, of Christmas. Now I've lost my thought. That's okay. You know, I'm just glad I made it through the names. Um, you know, it was hard. Uh, <laughs> I did have to read through those a lot. Anyways, um, what I want us to do, though, just right now, is I just want us to look and see that Jesus is the long-awaited king who brings God's rule and blessing. That's Matthew's whole point. A- and, and when I got to this point, I thought, man, we could do this cursory look through Matthew, just showing how Matthew shows Jesus to be king, on how Matthew shows Jesus to fulfilling all these things that, uh, that we have found in the Old Testament, on how he perfectly models covenant faithfulness, on how he leads us into perfect righteousness. Uh, but what I want to do here is, first I want you to see that the genealogy is bracketed by the word Christ. Look at verse 1 and verse 17. Verse 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then verse 17 So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. 14 generations. Now, many of you probably know that Christ is not Jesus' last name, but just so you know, it's not his last name. Um, the word Christ means the anointed one. And so in the beginning, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed one, verse 16, whom Jesus was born, who was called the anointed one. And then all these generations culminating to the birth of the anointed one. That's what Matthew wants us to see. That Jesus is the one who brings forth God's rule and his blessing. And so when we gather for Christmas, when we decorate like this room, and some of you have already decorated, and many of you are going to decorate later tonight. I think the Van Heerden's are, and so if they need help, they'll probably call you. You can come over there and help them. Um, but we are ultimately gathering to celebrate Christmas. The faithfulness and the power of God to bring forth His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world so that we, sinful humanity, could be forgiven and brought back into the very presence of God. Experience the blessing of His rule. So we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate that nothing has been able to thwart God's plans. We celebrate that God and his power, despite Satan, despite all the spiritual forces that have attacked God's plan, despite humanity and all of our rebellion, God has kept his promises. And so what I want to end today by asking this question, can we trust God now? If we believe in his son, Jesus Christ, are we Truly saved from our sins and brought into his kingdom When we come to the gates of heaven will god say I changed my mind. It's not through jesus Is he faithful now This is what paul says in romans 10 If you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead You will be saved Anyone who calls on him, we've seen Rahab, we've seen Ruth, we've seen these different people from different nationalities and cultures and kingdoms already being brought into the very family of God. And so can we today believe Paul? Is God faithful to forgive all who call on the name of Jesus? And so based upon just what we have seen here today and the rest of the New Testament, I just want to give three reasons why we can say yes. Number one. The Old Testament proves God's faithfulness. This is what the genealogy shows us. And we, we could even start back in Genesis. Where in Genesis 3.15, we read that one day God will send forth a seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, which is ultimately seen in Jesus Christ. We, we could look at other ways. But beginning with Abraham, where Matthew does, we see that God has been faithful all the way through the old testament to keep his promises to bring about the birth of his son jesus christ number two the cross of jesus proves god's power the ultimate demonstration of god's power in the bible is not creation do you know that it's not creation it's not the calling forth of abraham it's not the parting of the red sea or the walls of jericho come tumbling down oh you're singing that right now right it's in your head The ultimate demonstration of God's power is Jesus coming to earth as a man. God being clothed in humanity, and we'll talk more about that next week, where eventually he will go to the cross, where he will die, and then three days later rise again, defeating sin, death, and Satan. And how do we know that he rose, or how do we know that he conquered? Because he rose. Because the witnesses that we have in God's Word testifying to it because of the empty tomb. The reason we have Christmas is ultimately so that we would have Easter. That's the point of today. As we move towards Christmas. Is that Jesus has come, but He's come as, the, as accomplishing God's plan for a mission. And the mission is to save. And so we can believe that God will will save all who confess and profess the name of Jesus because Jesus has raised from the dead because he has come but let me give one more this directs our attention further and Matthew points out various things that point us towards the future but I want to just direct our eyes to revelation where the book of revelation proves that Jesus is the anointed one and there is an innumerable amount of texts that we could look at and in fact many of you know we preached through revelation uh, about a year ago and and this is what we read in revelation chapter 7 verse 9 after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and salvation and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne into the lamb you see revelation reveals the spiritual realities that surround us they also at times will point us towards the spiritual realities that that lay ahead of us and here we're given a glimpse of what happens at the end of creation when jesus will come back and gather his bride. Gather all who has believed in him. And what we see is that there is a multitude from every nation, tribes, tongues, nations, languages. Where does that come from? All the way back in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. Where, we, where God promises that through Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now, here in Revelation, we have families from all over the earth. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and language standing before. And why are they standing before the throne? Because of the Lamb who was slain. Because Jesus died and rose. Accomplishing all that God had promised. Fulfilling, being faithful to all of his promises, fulfilling the entire Old Testament so that you and I who hear this word today would be able to believe in God based upon the validity and truth of his word that he has given us. I hope you know God is faithful to save. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, if you believe in your heart, then you can have great confidence that you are saved great confidence. And so as we, as we make our way into this Christmas season, which it feels so weird to already be at the end of 2019, doesn't it? Are you like ready for this? But as we move into this season, let's remember that Christmas is first, first and foremost about God and what he has done for us in Jesus. Let's remember that Jesus has come so that you and I, by God's grace, could be saved and made citizens of God's kingdom. So it would be brought into his kingdom. We'd receive citizenship transfer papers that we'd now be adopted into his family, into his kingdom. That we'd be seen as a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Not a sub-heir, not a slave, but a co-heir with Jesus. And that we would enjoy the rule and blessings of God for all of eternity. And so may Christmas be a comfort to our hearts, reminding our God is faithful. Nothing can thwart his purposes. Nothing can thwart his promises. And I also want to say, may we be encouraged to share the truth of the gospel with our friends, with, those, with our coworkers, with those whom we encounter this year. Remember, the success of our evangelism, it doesn't, rely, <clears throat> it doesn't rely upon you and me. God simply calls us to be faithful. He calls us to be obedient. He's not asking you to be elegant and have great rhetoric when you speak. He's not asking you to have all the texts in the New Testament, all the Romans wrote, all memorized. Great if you do. Those will help. But God is calling us to be faithful, trusting that he is powerful to accomplish his purposes through us. Not because of our abilities, but because of his abilities, because of his infinite resources, because of the power and strength in the indwelling spirit that he has placed within us. God simply calls us to obey. He uses our imperfect obedience to accomplish great works. That's what we see in this genealogy. All of these names testifying to the greatness of our God. And So let's begin, as we go through this series, with remembering that we are here because of God. And that there is great comfort that our God loves mankind because we are made in his image. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so we could be saved. And we know if we believe in him, we are saved because he is faithful to keep his promises. Every promise he has made, he has kept. And because he is perfect, holy, and righteous, he will always continue to keep them. Let's pray. And I'll invite the men to come down and we'll pass out communion this morning. Our Father.